Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Today, my guest um, is from the uh, Beyond Zero Emissions Group. I guess we'll be getting into that a little bit more. Um, I actually just got in the door. I was at Occupy Detroit, and um, it was an excellent experience, but I'll definitely be talking about uh, more in another broadcast. But you can check out my blog at v-radio.org, and I just wrote a blog about my experience last weekend at Occupy Detroit, where I got to essentially help them occupy. I camped out. It was cold, wet, miserable, and I miss it already. <laughs> even though I just got back, even, I miss it already. So, um, sounds like you might, uh, by the way, it sounds like my guest might have the show open at, um, somewhere. You might want to pause it there so that we don't hear the echo. Um, but anyway, uh, my, my guest today is Pablo, is that how I say that? Yeah, sure. Yep. Excellent. Pablo, and Pablo. well, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Okay. Well, um, my name is Pablo Bright. I'm a general manager at a group called Beyond Zero Emissions, which is an Australian-based group. Um, we have a head office here in Melbourne and branches all over Australia. Um, Volunteer-based. Uh, I guess. Uh, climate change and energy solutions uh, research think tank. Um, we look at the solutions to the climate crisis and then try to get them out into the public as much as possible. So we run education campaigns as well. All right, excellent. Well, um, as I always do with every other uh, you know guest that I bring on here, I always ask them the question: What was the precipice? What was the moment in your life that made you decide? to um, go further and actually try to improve the world rather than just being part of it? Yeah, it's a good question. For me, I don't think there was ever any particular precipice or aha moment. I've I've always been really interested in politics since I was very young. I think um, my my family background, uh, my grandfather was a, a Holocaust survivor and my parents left Argentina just after the particularly brutal military dictatorship and and settled here in Australia. And I think I was always really aware of how politics can actually affect people's lives. Um, And I guess that's a perspective that many of us in the USA or in Australia luckily don't necessarily get to see. Well, not haven't over the last few decades, I guess, in the US, we're starting to see it now with with the economic downturn. and so I was always really interested in politics, really interested in social justice issues, um, stemming from just my interest in my own family's history. And then um, about five, six years ago, I was studying environmental engineering um, and also studying uh, international development at university and it sort of came to the realisation that climate change and energy was the, the key issue that pretty much um, determined... Uh, you know, every other issue, like it was sort of this overarching problem that if we didn't solve that, we weren't really going to solve much. So started getting more interested in that area and um, about four years ago formed a local climate action group in my neighbourhood together with a a couple of other of my neighbours and since then, um, you know, started working at Beyond Zero Emissions about two and a half years ago. Well, that's awesome. Now, you know, it's interesting that, you know, there's always so much controversy among activists about the issue of global warming. 
And, you know, I generally tell people, I'm like, well, look, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, but I can tell you that pretty much everything that the climate people, the people who are against global warming, obviously, are advocating sounds like a good idea for me anyway. I mean, even if you don't believe in global warming, I don't like acid rain, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I don't like you know, dumping humongous amounts of pollute, you know, pollutants into the air. Uh, so none of the things that are the alleged causes of global warming are good for us. So I, I don't. I mean, it's the people who want to get into that 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 issue. And I've seen some people really hotly debate it. You know, um, I've also seen people put a lot of stock in it to the point that they won't even talk to an activist anymore if they happen to believe in it or don't believe in it. It becomes very polarizing. Like I remember. Uh, Annie Leonard, uh, who does the story of stuff, uh, she did a different yeah. episode called, uh, you know, the story of cap and trade because, you know, she believes in global warming. And then there were people who are like flaming her and being like, well, screw Annie Leonard. She believes in, you know, global warming as if that meant that everything else Annie Leonard ever said was therefore null and void. And I was like, look, guys, come on. You know, that's so silly. You know, I'm like, there's so much other stuff this lady has said that's that's far more important than that argument. You know, I, I guess then the question for, you know, for you would be, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've, you've run into activists who don't believe in global warming. How do you generally, you know, address that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the, the point to make initially is that the work that we do at Beyond Zero Emissions, as you said, um, the solutions we put forward are good for, for, for everyone. They, they generate energy security, they generate economic prosperity, um, and they generate uh, improved standard of living, whether you accept the scientific evidence or you or you choose to deny the scientific evidence. Um, but um, so so we actually have a lot of people who I guess would call themselves skeptics who like our work, but admittedly it's very rare. I mean I don't know whether it's more widespread in the USA, but even in Australia, where we're one of the countries where where climate change denialism is is um, you know, more widespread than other places such as Europe. Even so, I very rarely come across them. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it, it's not really, um, yeah, it, it's more, it, it's a very demographic thing here in Australia. You tend to find people of a much older generation um, who are climate skeptics, and you also tend to find people closely linked with the fossil fuel industries who are. Um, but in the main, to be honest, um, I don't come across them that often. And when I do, yeah, I try to sort of say to them, well, look, um, that's fine. You, you don't have to accept the evidence if you don't want to. But obviously, as you said, the solutions, you know, you can't disagree with energy security and you can't disagree with reducing pollution. So that's really, um, you know, it's an important thing for everyone. But obviously, part of, part of what Beyond Zero Emissions does, and we'll probably get onto this in a sec, is, you know, we base our our scenarios that we model, our transition scenarios to zero emissions on um, the climate science in that we use the climate science to determine how quickly we do that transition. So um, I guess by accepting the scientific evidence, you then, um, you know, accept our reasoning for doing it in a decade as opposed to doing it in 20 or 30 or 40 years. Right. You know, um I guess I think it's you, you guys also. I mean, you, you focus on awareness of alternative energies, uh, and I think that's important regardless. Um, even if yeah. you, it kind of comes back to that issue of uh, whether global warming is real or not is irrelevant. We need alternative energies because our current lifestyle is not sustainable. Um, I mean, that's correct, it, yeah. 
you know, so I think that the, the, the global warming argument, it almost seems to me like a, a great way to distract people from the real issue, which is that we need to switch to alternative energy anyway, you know, whether or not it's about global warming or not. You know, I, I've seen a lot of people, they get very polarized, you know, um, they'll allow things to kind of distract them. Like I remember, you know, on a completely unrelated issue, I was I, I put up a documentary once called uh, No End in Sight. Um, and of course, you know, the 9-11 issue is something that is very controversial. And there are people who are very energetic about it on one side or the other. And at one point, one of the people that they interviewed in this film obviously was not a 9-11 truther, you know. Um, and so yeah. they're like, well, screw this film. I don't want to watch this film because they, they don't, you know, they think that 9-11 wasn't an inside job. And I'm like, come on. And I'm like, okay, the guy just said <laughs> that there was no reason to go into Iraq. That's what's most important. Let's talk about that. You know, that's why I say to people, you know, don't get so emotionally attached to, to things that you were, you know, you're talking about to the point that you discount everything else that someone says. But we, we've done enough on that. Now, how long has your organization been going? We started in 2006, mm-hmm. um, and we, I mean, we, we haven't been particularly big up until about the last 12 months when we started, about 18 months when we started actually publishing a lot of the research. So um, before that, you know, I mean, we're still a grassroots volunteer-based organization, um, and yeah, from 2006 to 2009, it was just volunteers, and since then, we've managed to fundraise and bring on some paid staff. Um, but yeah, started up by two guys, um, Matthew Wright and Adrian Whitehead, uh, based here in Melbourne, um, who I guess saw a gap in the climate movement as it stood, um, you know, at, at this point in time, um, and decided that they wanted to, to fill that gap. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, excellent. Now, I guess uh, let's kind of go into like, you know, how does this manifest? What do you guys do? Do you, I mean, do you? Uh, to educate people. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, it doesn't sound like any kind of a protest movement or anything like that, but to facilitate this information, how do you guys go about it? Okay, so what we do is we've sort of got two branches to the organization. One is the research side, and then one is the education side. So the research side, we've got this project at the moment called the Zero Carbon Australia Project, and that's mm-hmm. looking at how you would um, get to zero emissions across the whole Australian economy within 10 years using existing commercially available technology. So it's a fairly uh, large-scale vision uh, with an endpoint of a zero emissions economy uh, within 10 years. And so we've split that up into five different sectors of the economy. Uh, And the first one which we released last year is stationary energy. So that's looking at electricity production. Um, Australia, similar to the US, is highly dependent on coal for our electricity. So um, and a bit of gas as well. So we focused on um, shifting the electricity sector to 100% renewables, and we're currently working on buildings, transport, and land use. So looking at getting those three sectors as well to zero emissions uh, within a decade. Um, and industrial processes is the fifth one, which we haven't um, started yet. And the way we do it is we usually get a project director who's usually... Um, you know, an employee either of ours or of our partner at Melbourne University. We've got a, a partnership with the Melbourne Energy Institute at, at the University of Melbourne. Um, and then what they do is they leverage volunteers um, to work together using an online wiki and various other um, online systems to put the research together. So what we do is we bring in people who have, you know, goodwill and who, 
who, who like the idea of this vision of a zero emissions economy, usually retired engineers or engineering students or you know people working in the sectors that we're researching already, they come together um, and we sort of help coordinate their research. We scope out what we want to look at. They do the research, put it onto the wiki, work it together. We get peer review um, and all that stuff. So that's the research side. Um, and we produce fairly detailed reports. So the one we've released on stationary energy, um, on electricity production, is you know a 200-page report which has the kinds of technology you'd use to get Australia to 100% renewable electricity supply, how much it would cost, um, how much concrete steel and glass you'd need, how many jobs would be lost um, in the fossil fuel sector, and how many would be created in renewables. Um, you know, very very detailed. Right. Um, then we've got the education side, and so um, which is the area I work in a bit more as well. So we we then take the research that we do, and then instead of just having it like a normal academic report which gets published and then you get maybe a day of media then it sits on the shelf, we actually use grassroots methods and organising to get that information out to the public and out to fellow energy campaigners. Um, so they're armed with that information as widely as possible. So we've got a media team that does a lot of writing. We've got um, a presentations team. So we've, we train people up to actually present on our work. Um, and then we try to facilitate and help them to get speaking engagements. And we'll speak to anyone from small, you know, a church group or a local environment group up to sort of the boardroom of a major corporation. And again, we've got different speakers who have the skills to present to different audiences. Um, and we've got a radio. We've also got a radio show, which um, on a community radio station here in Melbourne, but we also podcast on our website. Um, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff that we do to get the word out there um, as much as possible. Excellent. You know, um, I have to say, uh, first of all, I have to say thank you to one of my listeners named Dan Harris, who's actually the person who brought um, you know you to my attention. Um, and in addition, I guess uh, it's really important that we shift to educating people about alternative energies, especially since the the world is really ignorant about it. I mean, and I don't say that to be mean, but like, you know, for example, uh, one I bring up all the time is I was discussing this issue with somebody and I said, well, you know, you could install a geothermal system. And he's like, geothermal, that's not real. That's Star Trek, you know. <laughs> and I had to bring up to him, like, did you know that Iceland powers itself like 70% by geothermal energy? <laughs> He had no idea, you know, um, and it's it's amazing to me how little people know about this. A lot of them, you know, like the ability to get off the grid, like I was quoted about 18000 if I wanted to go all solar to get my house off the grid. And that's paying someone yeah. else to do it, of course. You know, um, they don't even know it's an option, you know, and I think that that's, that's basically by design. I mean, obviously, energy companies don't want you finding out about this, you know, um, and I, I guess, uh, you know, when it comes to educating people about this stuff, I mean, I mean, how often in your line of work specifically do you run into situations where you just totally stump people with the, the, the real current potentials of alternative energy? Every day of the week. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really is, it really is amazing. And you're right. There, there, is, there is a concerted campaign here in Australia, and I'm sure it's very similar in the U.S., by the fossil fuel lobby and we call it the can't do campaign hmm. um, to to generate a, a belief in the public that renewable energy is either 
not technically up to the task of repowering our economies or too expensive or costing jobs or destroy the economy, etc. Um, so we come across that every single day and our main task at the moment is showing people how you could replace, for example, baseload you know, power, the power that works night and day round the clock from coal and gas, because people conceptually can understand how you can just burn coal and gas whenever you want, um, how we can actually switch to renewable systems and replace that system using existing technology. Um, yeah, that people just don't, don't get it and they're fed, and they're fed lies constantly, um, particularly via the mainstream media, um, you know, that it's not possible. And even when you um, prove to people that it is, there's still that niggling doubt there because the propaganda of the Can't Do campaign has been so successful. Now it's interesting you you point that out it's it's the the lobby of the you know the the people who use non-renewable energies and it, it's interesting to me how uh, you, people would call that a conspiracy theory you know they'd say oh well you know your beliefs that these companies would try to you know hinder knowledge of that information that's just crazy and I'm like oh come on guys we do this all the time i mean does mcdonald's spend a bunch of time telling you how great burger king is you know do they tell you that the alternative is just as good as they are? They certainly never tell you the alternative is better than they are. This is basic understanding of advertising economics. Of course they're going to tell you that, you know, that these things can't work. Of course they don't want you thinking about the potentials of these other products, particularly the ones that if everybody finally figured out just how easy it really could be to get the whole world off the grid. You know, the, these people who are completely dependent upon, you know, the the use of fossil fuels would essentially crap their pants. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> if we all figured it out, you know, how yeah. how easy it would be. They don't want us to know, you know, and that's that, that's not some crazy conspiracy theory. It's clear, you know, it, it happens in everything where you involve money. You know, they they don't want us to be in a position where we could just get our own energy. You know, just like anything else. You know, I'm sure that there were people who gave people clean water who wouldn't want us to have public water. You know. <laughs> It's the same thing, and in fact, when you when you go to some places, they don't want it to be public water; they want it to be private. You know, um, so I guess uh, when you guys focus on this, like I'm looking at your website right now, and it's actually really nice. Um, looking at the the solar concentrator array, is that what that is? Yep. Yeah, that looks really impressive. Where is that? So that's um, that's the Hemisolar plant in Spain. So mm -hmm. that's one of the key technologies. Um, Australia is a very very sunny place and um, we are one of the best countries in the whole world for solar power and we actually have some of the best researchers on solar power in the world and then traditionally what they do is they leave the country to commercialize the technologies they develop because um, the fossil fuel lobby has such a grip on our politics and and as you say it's not it, it, it's got nothing to do with conspiracy it's just people protecting their vested interests and you know you just I'll, I'll I'll get onto the solar thermal again in a sec, but I just wanted to say that you know you you just mentioned you got back from Occupy Detroit, right? And I think the the Occupy movement is you know this is what we're on about. It's basically um, we have uh, fossil fuel you know we have large corporations with who donate a lot of money to our political leaders who have a lot of influence um, over our governments and they're there to protect their own profits. It's not a conspiracy. It's just companies protecting their vested interests and a political system that allows them to do that. And so, um, you know, that's why you're getting a lot of um, 
reaction against renewable energies. But yeah, to get back onto the um, the, the solar thermal concentrator, so that the solar thermal power tower is um, is really elegant, simple, you know, commercially available technology where you concentrate the sun's rays up to the top of a tower and then um, the way you actually store that heat, so it's solar thermal, not, not photovoltaic like solar panels that you put on your roof, so it converts the sun's heat to uh, the sun's energy to heat rather than directly into electricity. And then what you do is you store that heat in a fluid um, called molten salt, which is um, potassium and sodium nitrate. It's basically industrial fertilizer. Um, you store the heat from the sun in the molten salt. You've got very efficient um, storage there. And when you want to make the electricity, you take the heat from the salt, you flash water to steam, turn a turbine, turn a generator, just like a normal coal or gas-fired power station. And so um, this technology is now operating in Spain. They're actually building a couple of these plants in the U.S., in California and Nevada as we speak as well, um, much larger ones than the one that they're building in Spain. Um, so it's technology that's developing very rapidly and dropping in price very rapidly. And for sunny countries, um, you know, combining it with other key renewable technologies that aren't easy to store, like wind and solar panels, this, this technology is absolutely perfect. And um, we're very, um, you know, our, our zero carbon stationary energy plan uses 60% of our electricity um, to come from this technology, solar thermal with molten salt storage um, in the future. And we're big advocates of this technology, particularly because in Australia, um, it's ideal for our conditions. And look, in the US, particularly in the Southwest, um, there's huge potential for solar, um, you know, for solar energy in, in that part of the world as well. No, yeah, I was looking at this thing and it just looks amazing to me. And it, it it's interesting, actually, as you pointed out, so many sunny places. We've got huge desert areas in the United States that would be great for this, where there's nothing. You know, it's just it's a big, giant desert. You know, you could easily put solar power there. You could get huge amounts of power all the time. Um, you know, and I've heard of different places, like I guess the Dubai is talking about building the Ziggurat, which is like this giant solar generator. Um, you know, there's, and that's the other thing about solar. I'm subscribed to a, a blog called Gizmag, and almost every week there's a new innovation in solar, making it more efficient than it was before. You know, it's it's amazing to me how fast. I mean, in fact, the innovations are coming out so fast for solar. That the that the industry cannot keep up with the innovations in solar. Um, like you can't go, like by the time you're ready to put the new solar arrays together, there's another one that's already better. And I think that it's because it was a it was a science that was just not researched well enough. And now that some money is actually being applied to it, you're seeing it just come in so fast and so hard. You know, um, and I think uh, looking at you know more stuff you've got here, you've also got something about wind power um see you know the merit of wind energy i think was the name of the article and this actually brings to my attention there was a there was a wind generation system in germany that got so much juice that they had to like cut it off the grid or something Do, are you familiar with what i'm talking about uh not not that particular example but mm -hmm. um what you are what, I mean, what you are getting, I, I read an article just the other day that in Texas, mm -hmm. again, because of wind power and because of this effect that, you're, that you talk about um, in Germany, 
the wholesale price of electricity for a half-hour block dropped to zero, zero dollars. Right. Um, and so that article that you mentioned, the merit of wind energy, talks about an effect called the merit order effect, which um, basically means that the technologies with the lowest marginal cost of electricity production, so um, you know, not counting the capital cost to build it, but the, the cost to just produce the next unit of electricity, so wind and solar are very low. They're actually pricing out your fossil fuel um, your fossil fuel generators in, in many cases, particularly during peak times or low or, or very low um, uh, demand times. And they're actually causing, uh, they're, they're lowering the price of electricity uh, in these places. And we've found that in the state of South Australia here in, in Australia. Um, you're finding that in Texas and you're finding that in Germany. Right. Now, it's interesting, actually, also when we go on to the concept of wind power, uh, there's a place in the central United States uh, that it, that there's enough wind power there that is projected that if it were harvested correctly, you could power the entire United States just on wind power. And this is, again, something that people are not aware of. It's like we're talking about let's build more nuclear power plants that create endless pollution that we can't get rid of. You know, let's let's build more. You know, the fact that we even have coal plants to me is just it's an offense. You know, <laughs> just to, just to humanity yeah. in general. You know, it, the fact that anybody's ever talking about building more coal plants is even more terrifying to me. Then you got fracking. You know, uh, which the, you know that documentary Gasland that utterly terrified me. You know, I have friends who live in Texas, and I'm like. You know, because there was some fracking going on in that area, and I was like, "Dude, you know, you, you need to be aware of this, and don't let this happen because it will ruin everything. You know, it'll ruin your water, and then in turn, it just destroys your ecology. And they've managed to find ways to to do it in ways that hurts other people's land, and it's hard to prove. You know, like that's the I don't know if you've seen the documentary, but at one point, the guy turns on his water faucet and takes a lighter to it and lights his water on fire. You know, his yeah, water. I have seen, I have seen it. <laughs> His water on fire, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, um, and, and we're we're screwing around with all this when we should be doing something like, you know, massive wind power, massive solar. And those are even, you know, as compared to geothermal, those are actually projected to be the weakest of the of the group, not to mention tidal power and wave power. You know, I had a on a previous show, I had a guy from the company called Verdant Power and they do tidal power, which is just putting, you know, rudders in rivers, you know, that run yeah. all the time. And uh, that was a great show. If anybody wants to check that out, you can you can check that out in my archives at v-radio.org. Um, we did a great radio show with a guy from Verdant Power. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I guess so. We, we've talked a little bit about the potential of wind. We talked about the potential of solar. Um, how much work does your organization do with geothermal? We we don't do a lot because um, we only focus on commercially available technologies, um, mm -hmm. and geothermal in Australia um, is not commercially available because it uses a kind of technology called dry rock geothermal, which is very different to what they're using in Iceland or in New Zealand or in the places right. where geothermal is very well developed. And so it's not quite at the stage where we can include it in our research because it's still... Um, they're still trying to, you know, they're still researching it. They're still trying to get it to the point where they can commercialize it, and it's not quite there yet. 
And so we, we don't want any excuses to not start the transition today. So that's why we only use commercially available technologies. And in our updates to the plan, we're more than happy to include anything that's sort of commercialized in the time between our publishing the first version and the second version. Um, but yeah, geothermal is not quite up to the task in Australia at this point. So you guys don't even have like the because uh, you can buy these these heating and cooling systems for your home. Is there you don't have anybody doing uh, that yet? Yeah, no, no, that's different. Yeah, sorry. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess that's a ground source heat pump, um, and we are looking at them in our buildings plan, which we're hoping to release in March of next year. Um, and we're looking at those for heating, particularly heating and cooling commercial buildings, like large commercial buildings in particular, using ground source heat pumps could potentially be a really good way of, of doing that. Well, excellent. Yeah, actually, that's an excellent point. Um, it's uh, especially the large building thing. You know, so much energy is used doing that, especially in extreme climates, whether it be keeping cold, you know, in a place like Australia or keeping warm, you know, in a place in the north. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Carlton Brown, and I learned about this from an episode of a TV show called Big Ideas from a Small Plant for a Small Planet, and he's building uh, apartment complexes in Harlem, New York. Uh, so he's building basically in the ghetto. He's building apartment complexes that use geothermal systems for their heating and cooling, so that it keeps the you know the heating and cooling prices down to an affordable level, you know, in this place in Harlem, New York. Um, and geothermal for heating and cooling is just – it's because basically all you're doing is you're just grabbing the air that's at a consistent temperature at all times under the ground and um, you know, pumping it into your house rather than trying to use a machine to either make it cold or make it hot. You're just grabbing the air that's the right temperature in the first place and blowing it around your house. Um, and mind you, they, they, uh, they are sort of pricey to include in your in your household, but – you know, when I tell people, for example, who are talking about making sustainable communities, anytime you're going to have a big building for maybe gathering or, or even manufacturing for your community, you're going to want to use a geothermal heat pump system as opposed to, you know, hooking up some big giant, you know, monstrosity that probably runs on energy that you got from a coal plant somewhere. Yeah. And look, the, I mean, these technologies are total common sense. I mean, the, 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 problem, the problem at the moment is that, um, you know, fossil fuels are still cheap. And so there's no doubt in my mind that um, even if just left to the, to the market, renewables um, will end up winning over fossil fuels because renewables are rapidly dropping in price and fossil fuels are currently going up and they will continue to go up because of scarcity issues um, and all those sorts of things. And people now, you know, Australia, next week, Australia will be passing a carbon tax, um, you know, so that'll add to the price of fossil fuels as well. So um, that's the problem. But the main barrier, you know, we want that to happen. We want renewables to win and become cheaper than fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And the main barrier at the moment is is less research and development, although that is very important, but it's just getting the support from governments to actually roll this technology out and start reducing the prices by just building lots and lots of it, creating economies of scale. And that's really what we need to do. So we need, you know, we need governments to stop subsidizing fossil fuels because you know, governments all over the world are spending billions of dollars subsidizing the use of coal, oil and gas. And if you would shift that money across to um, price support mechanisms or other sort of mechanisms for renewable energy, then you would actually see 
the, the, the price of these technologies like ground source heat pumps, like solar thermal power stations, dropping um, quite quickly and pretty soon they'd be cheaper than fossil fuels and then we're all better off, you know, in so many ways. Right. So, you know, the key message that, that we're sort of finding in our research is, you know, we need, um, we need governments to remove their support for fossil fuels and start putting their support into um, renewable energy only temporarily because it's only a matter of time before you can step back and let the market, you know, take its course if that's what you want to do. I mean, that's an ideological position. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's something that needs to happen or else the transition will be too slow and, you know, we'll be in, in all sorts of trouble if we don't do it quickly. Well, that's something I've told a lot of people is that, you know, the, the argument against that they give you for renewable energies is that they're just too expensive and that the infrastructure would be so expensive. And I'm like, look, fossil fuels are going to run out, folks. This is obvious, okay? We are dealing with a finite resource, and right now it's cheap. And what we should be doing strategically is while we have it, we should be using it and the energy that it gives to build the infrastructure necessary so that we don't need it anymore. Because if they think it's hard to put this stuff in now, imagine what it would be like after peak oil is completely exceeded, which some people believe it already is, okay? Um, yeah. You know, imagine what it would be like to try to build this infrastructure when we don't have our tractors, when we don't have our trucks, when we don't have any of our, you know, machinery, because we've waited too long, and now those machines, that you know, the oil that drives them is not available anymore. You know, that's like the, the point of no return that I'm hoping that we're not stupid enough to pass. You know, that's there was a guy actually independent who was running for president. And unfortunately, I forgot the guy's name, but he basically said that um, we need to do the equivalent, at least in the United States, of a Manhattan level project. The Manhattan project was something we put a crap load of money and resources into to make the first nuclear bomb. We need to do something on that level of that level of commitment in our governments to make and renewable energy now, you know, that it's, it's such a better idea to, to make renewable energy the way everything is, is run right now than it is to put the billions of dollars many countries do into their national defense so that they can just go take people's oil. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's absolutely right, and that's exactly what Beyond Zero Emissions advocates, a large-scale, you know, decade-long transition to a 100% renewable economy. And we've got a similar analogy here in Australia, um, not quite at the scale necessarily of the, of the Manhattan Project, but um, you know, in the 50s, just after the Second World War, um, our government built what was called the Snowy Mountain Hydro Scheme, which was a massive hydroelectricity project. I mean, it's dwarfed by what you're getting these days in places like China and Brazil, but um, you know, employed a lot of our um, a lot of our war veterans and a lot of our new immigrants. And it was just a massive infrastructure project that the whole country got behind. And, you know, they recognized that it was something that we want, we needed to do for our development. And what we're calling for is, I guess, you know, the Snowy Mountain Scheme of the 21st century. So a similar nation-building project to do this whole transition. And I think that that will actually be, on a political level, you know, it's far more popular to talk about nation building and to talk about transitions and energy security and renewable energy than it is to be talking about things like carbon taxes and cap and trade schemes um, and sort of the, the, the more you know neoliberal um, approach 
to tackling climate change, which has been shown to be very unpopular around the world. But even so, here in Australia, for example, when you poll, you know, I've seen polls of, of people asking people's opinions on, on renewable energy. And although most people are not in favour of the current um, proposal to put a carbon tax forward, um, you, get, you get huge amounts of people, 80% or more, you know, including very conservative people, people who see themselves as voters for the, the, the right-wing parties here in Australia, you get massive support for renewable energy across the board. And so, you know, my advice to, to policymakers as well and is to, you know, if you focus on this nation-building approach, then um, you can probably get a lot more done and you can weaken the political opposition from the fossil fuel lobby um, compared to, you know, what governments are currently trying to do. I absolutely agree with that, and I think that um, the work that you're doing is really important. And I hope that you know other groups actually, you know, lead from they you know, understand that example. I know, like, I have listeners in Australia, and um, actually a lot of them. And uh, one of the things that they they talk about is like. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, you're doing pretty well over there. Like, uh, I guess you guys actually have Green Party members in your parliament. Is that the word for it? But, like, you actually have elected Green Party officials. Um, do you ever end up working with any of them? Oh, uh, look, yeah, I mean, we, um, uh, yeah, I mean, because of our electoral system, we have a slightly fairer system than in the U.S., which creates space for, for alternative voices other than the two major parties. And so... We currently have um, a situation where um, the Greens have the balance of power in the Senate, so no two major party has the majority in the Senate and you have to have the Greens in order to pass or block anything. Um, and there's even a Green in the lower House of Parliament in what, you know, our House of Representatives or your Congress, I guess, um, in in the seat where, where I live, in fact, in the, the seat of inner Melbourne. Um, and so, I mean, the Greens are the one party which are in Parliament which is more in line with the kind of stuff we're saying. They don't, um, and they're, they're um, you know, we we've, we talk to them quite readily. They've got 100% renewable by 2030 policy, so they've added 10 years to, to the initial policy that, that we modelled, the initial transition we modelled. Um, and we do work with them um, as much as, you know, we're a politically nonpartisan organisation, so what we want to see is every single political party um, adopt responsible uh, climate and energy policies. Um, but the Greens are the ones that are closer to our position currently, and so um, we do occasionally, you know, have them speak at our events. Um, we present at, at, at Greens party branches to get Greens members on top of the kinds of technologies that, that we advocate. Um, and just uh, just this week, actually, Beyond Zero Emissions was mentioned in the Australian Senate by one of the Green senators during the carbon tax debate, sort of complimenting us on our work and for putting forward this vision, which has shown that it's actually possible to get to 100% renewable energy. Yeah, actually, I saw that that little uh, blog post you had there, and I think that's great. And I understand the benefit of being nonpartisan. I remember, for example, when I had a... Robert Greenwald, the guy who made uh, a documentary about water, uh, it wasn't Flow for the Love of Water, it was the other one, um, which for some reason now is escaping me. But anyway, at least I remember his name. Um, and, and, and then there was, but anyway, uh, he talked about um, 
how like before we you know because i always talk about this before i bring somebody on i usually talk to them about like maybe anything they don't want to cover and he's like well the one thing i'm trying to do is i don't want the water issue to become a democrat issue i don't want it to become a republican issue you know so let's try to keep it under the understanding that it's better for people on the right and the left that they can drink their water (laughs) and i said you know (laughs) what you're saying makes perfect sense you know um and and it's unfortunate that you know the, the the fossil fuel lobby has so much power you know um but overall it, it's kind of a matter of projecting this from the perspective of look fellas i don't care what party you're in you know we need energy we need water you know period we need uh, a planet that's not utterly polluted these are things that appeal to everyone so i can completely understand why you know you could say yeah we work with the greens but we're nonpartisan because it needs to go beyond that because there'll be people who will block something just because it's not their own party, which is one of the reasons why uh, George Washington actually was president um, right around the time that the party system started. And one of the things that he said was that he thought the party system was terrible, that it was going to be the destruction of the political process that they had created. Um, and, you know, he, he spoke actively against it. And ironically, he's the only independent president the United States has ever had. You know, <laughs> the very first yeah. president. Um, <laughs> and and he was right. You know, he was worried that, you know, if we did this thing, this divisive thing called political parties, that we would end up in a situation where, um, you know, that people would be worried about the, the good of their party rather than the good of the people. That people would start counting themselves as Democrats and Republicans is not the word he used, but as opposed to Americans. And he was right. Everything that the very first president of the United States said would happen due to the party system happened. And, you know, I guess like, you know, you guys, obviously you have you have more parties overall that are active. There are other countries that do that as well. Um, there also is the benefit of smaller constituencies that can affect politics like uh, George Galloway. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a he's a Scottish. Yeah. Scottish yeah. Scottish Parliament. And you wonder, like, how did this guy ever get elected? And then you find out that in the UK, your constituency could be tiny. You know, like, you quite literally could just walk your entire constituency, go door to door, shake hands with people and tell them who you are. You know, and that's a very different thing for me. Like, when I was running for Congress in the 10th District of Michigan, I had huge ground to cover, you know. Um, So... But overall, though, you know, I, I see totally where you're coming from about the nonpartisan issue. And I guess, uh, you know, a, as a general rule, though, um, what group would you say you get the, the most support from? In terms of political parties? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, I mean, in terms of parliamentary parties, mm-hmm. um, it, it, yeah, it's the left. The left of the spectrum is currently giving us more support. Um, so the Greens, um, then, you know, outside of Parliament, there's sort of the socialist parties that um, that support our work um, as well. But there's also key people within the Labor and the Liberal parties that, that really support our work as well. I mean, we had, um, and, you know, to the non-Australian listeners, this name will be meaningless, but we had a guy called Malcolm Turnbull, who was the leader of the Liberal Party, which is our equivalent to your Republicans, um, who is no longer the leader, but you know may become leader again, depending on how things go. And he spoke at our launch of our Zero Carbon Australia stationary energy plan in Sydney. Um, that's where he's based. Um, you know, we had a big, a big presentation at Sydney Town Hall, 
And he was there talking about how important this work was to get to 100% renewable energy. Um, you know, we've also got key supporters within the Labor Party, um, the current governing party, who, you know, uh, see this vision. But obviously they're constrained by the, the links that their party has to the fossil fuel lobby. And, um, you know, so they're sort of limited how much they can actually do. But the support cuts across um, the whole political spectrum. And I think it's crucial, um, I think, as you said, you know, everyone's got an interest in having clean water to drink. You know, everyone's got an interest in having energy security um, and all that, And which is, I guess, you know, in Australia and the US, we're, we're in sort of, we seem to have fairly regressive <laughs> political debates compared to other places. In Europe, the right of the political spectrum is, you know, just as, you know, from my understanding, is still very supportive of renewable energy and emissions reductions, because in Europe, the fossil fuel lobbies are much weaker, and they see this issue as one of energy security. They're importing their oil and their coal and their gas um, from all these places they don't want to be importing from, and so renewable energy is a way to get off that, and that appeals to conservatives as much as it appeals to progressives. Um, and so... Um, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, that's an important message to, to get out. And it is unfortunate that the issue has been politicized here as it has been in the US. Um, and you've got, you know, parties, particularly of the right, who sort of reject, um, you know, see themselves as the guardians of the status quo, no matter how damaging that status quo may be. And that's, that's a real shame. But I think there's still potential to break them out of that. Um, and, you know, to, to focus on the energy security aspect. Um, plus, um, you mentioned fracking. I mean, at the moment, we're currently um, also in, in, the, in, in, the, in the states of New South Wales and Queensland here in Australia, there's, there's a lot of coal seam gas development happening and you're getting a huge upsurge of community opposition to that. Um, in yeah. part, thanks, you know, Thanks to the Gasland movie, which got here before we started our crazy development of, of coal seam gas. And so you're starting to see an alliance of farmers and, you know, your traditional greens and environmentalists. And that alliance, if it gets much stronger, will turn politics on its head in Australia, because traditionally the farmers of, of Australia, the farmer lobby has been, you know, the, the representative is the National Party, which is a very conservative, um, you know, right wing party you know that you know essentially a lot of them are just complete dinosaurs but this coal seam gas issue is sort of breaking that you know creating these cracks within that edifice to sort of um give give support for renewable energy in there because the alternative to gas is renewables so if they don't want gas destroying their farmland and their water supplies then they need to get on board with renewable energy you know that's i i really after watching that i kept thinking about that friend of mine in texas and i kept telling him over and over again i'm like dude really you got to watch this you've got to watch this you need this information especially after he told me that he saw the fracking trucks trucks driving by i was like dude if they're in your area you you need to know this right now because because this is a guy who lives like he uses his land you know to survive he lives off the grid and i'm like they will destroy your water supply they will destroy your land. They will kill you. I mean, it kills people sometimes. You know, and then another evil, and I, I just call it evil. After I was finished with Gasland, I was like, this is evil. Another evil that's not really talked about as much is coal and some of the damage that coal can do 
there's a, a documentary called Burning Our Future, and it's about coal. And I got to watch these poor activists from, like, West Virginia and some of the states where they're blowing up mountains to get coal. And the stuff that it does to their water, you know, they, they poured out some of their water, and it was, like, yellow and black, you know. And it was yeah. it was making people sick, you know, and it was killing people. And it takes forever to figure out who's the source. It takes forever to prove it. You know, and then this group of activists from you know West Virginia, they go to the D.C., you know, and the politicians there just don't care. You know, I mean, because the coal industry invests in their campaigns, and then that's just it. And it's just we, we don't take enough time to be responsible about the politicians that, you know, that we that we choose. But on the same token, we, we facilitate a system where politicians are elected by money. And then we wonder why or rather we don't wonder enough why we don't hear enough from politicians that talk about things like renewable energy. You know, that's a great way to get marginalized. It's a great way not to get invented, invited to debates. It's a great way to not be talked about as a candidate. And, you know, that's why I tell people, I'm like, you know, educate yourself about this stuff because the media is owned by people who don't want you to know. <laughs> so if you're waiting yeah. around for them to teach you, that that's the wrong place. Oh, yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. And look, we have a similar situation here in Australia. I think it's slightly less extreme than the U.S. in terms of the role of money in political campaigning. But, I mean, it's well documented um, that the, the fossil fuel lobby pretty much, you know, has been the one writing climate and energy policy for the last 20 years in Australia. There was a, a PhD thesis actually brought out by a guy called Guy Pearce, who was a former Liberal Party member and staffer. Um, and and for us, sorry again, the liberals are the right wing of the spectrum here in Australia. Right, liberals right. With, a, with a with a capital L, um, and he was, um, you know, and he started doing this research on climate and energy policy, and he was the one who who sort of I can't remember what year it was. I think it was around 2006 or five or so. Um, he sort of released a, a a book called High and Dry, which was which started off as his PhD thesis, basically detailing exactly who the people were and how they were the ones working with our government pretty much determining what climate and energy policy this government was going to have and they were the fossil fuel lobby and so this this term was was coined called the greenhouse mafia and they were the ones um you know and and that influence remains it's been slightly weakened by um by the shift of the labor party government but you know, we still have Australia is still the world's biggest coal exporter. We're still planning to double our coal exports in the next uh, decade or so. Where there's coal seam gas development happening, you know, ra running rampant all over some of our best farmland, and we don't have that much farmland in Australia relative to our total land size because it's 80% desert. Um, and so, um, yeah, we we you know, it's well documented that those things happen, and it is really important. I mean, our research is to do with showing the technical feasibility of transitioning to zero emissions. And so part of our role is to show that technologically the transition is possible in order to shift the focus to the real barrier, which is the political barrier. Because um, once you prove to people that technologically we can get energy security, we can have no pollution, we can have renewable energy and hopefully a safe climate future, 
then they start to ask themselves the question, so if that's possible, then why aren't we doing it? And I guess, and the answer to that is there are political barriers in place. Um, you know, reducing the investment in renewable rollout, maintaining, you know, insane subsidies for fossil fuels, just insane, and creating this bizarre dichotomy. Like here in the state of Victoria, um, our state government, which is a new state government, they've been in about a year, and again, they're liberal with a capital L, um, they've created a law where if you're within two kilometres of a wind turbine, you can veto the building of that turbine. You can stop it if you're within two kilometres. And we're a small state and densely populated for Australia. It's basically ruled out almost any place in Victoria for a wind turbine. However, if you want to build a coal mine or coal seam gas or a coal-fired power station, you know, um, then you can pretty much do whatever you want. And the, you know, there's just an example. Just, just last week, they renewed the lease on a coal mine near the, the coastal town of Anglesey, which is within 1.5 kilometres of a primary school, an elementary school. Um, and they, they, they renewed the lease for this mine for another 50 years, and it's a brown coal mine and has terrible particulate pollution coming out of it. But yet, if that coal mine was a wind farm, a harmless wind farm, then that primary school and the people living around it would have been able to veto it and stop it from being built. That's just so ridiculous. You know, I, hey, guys, you have the freedom to, to not have free energy, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you yeah. want to pay extra and extra pollution, you know, we protect your rights to, to pollute and kill yourself. But, you know, we also protect your rights to not, you know, to not, you know, uh, decide to not pollute and kill yourself. And this it's so asinine. It's a backwards thinking, you know. And exactly. It just, it's amazing to me, though. I, I I wish it didn't surprise. I wish it surprised me more. That that's what I have to say. You know, I wish yeah. it surprised me more that 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 went on because that sounds exactly like some of the crap that I've seen people go through, like when they try to get off the grid. You know, they they have all these little ways to try to keep you in the system. You know, like the guy who did the garbage warrior stuff, who builds those earth ships. You know, yeah, yeah. it's illegal for him to build those buildings, and you know they they call in all these obscure ordinances. And I'm just like, look, is he hurting anybody? Is anything he's doing hurting anyone? Then leave him the hell alone. You know. Yeah. I, I just so, but yeah, you know. Um, once again, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and I'm glad you know. Actually, that we were able to have another show involving stuff going on in Australia because I have a lot of listeners in Australia, um, and apparently a lot of people. Because I just had to go over the list of people who donated for the raffle that I'm going to have to announce here at the end of the show in a few minutes, and um, there were a lot of people donating from Australia too. And I I try to have an international show um, because I definitely have an international audience, and I want to thank everybody who's listening. Um, and let's take a moment to, to plug your website so that people know where they can learn more and listen to this uh, radio show that you guys do. Yep, so it's beyondzeroemissionsaltogether.org, and there you've got, you know, we've got resources for people. We've got the radio show podcast under our media. Um, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that people can get involved, that people can check out, and if you're based in Australia, you can volunteer with us as well. Um, and just, you know, get that positive vision of what, you know, what a 100% renewable uh, economy could be like out there 
um, and, you know, pressuring, trying to get people to sign on to that vision. I mean, that, that's the key of what we're trying to do. And for those of you listening who are fans of the resource-based economy or the, um, the, Re- the Venus Project concept, you know, that's definitely a component because you're talking about a renewable economy, you know, economical situation. Uh, Jacques Fresco talks about, you know, um, that this is how all energy should be gotten for, you know, for people in a, you know, basically are drawn from people with, you know, within a given society. And um, so what you're looking at here, folks, is a component of that kind of life for the future. So um, thanks again, Pablo, for being on. Um, that's an interesting name for an Australian uh <laughs> But um, is it is it common or I mean it's just I don't know that just caught me like where I no, it's, it would, it's, that, would, that would sound Hispanic like if we, if you lived over here yeah well I I mentioned at the beginning my parents I was born in Argentina right so I I moved to Australia when I was very young a young I was a toddler and um uh so main you know kept my name but yeah it's not a common name here in Australia we have. Very, I mean, especially compared to the U.S., very low immigration from from Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, it's good. People always remember it at parties. That's really awesome, actually. You know, um, something Jacques Fresco talks about is like you know people from different cultures. Like you know, if if you hadn't told me that, you know, or told the listeners that, they would have just assumed you were some white Australian guy. But you know, clearly. You know your direction from you know from Australia and the culture there has has helped to shape who you are, and that's why I know that we can overcome our environment. We can be whatever we want to be. So, thanks again for being on, Pablo, and um, keep doing the work that you're doing. And you know, like I tell everybody else, um, I had you on the show because I like the work that you're doing. If anything's ever coming up, you know, that you want to report on or any you know big news or whatever that's coming up. Um, essentially my listeners donate so that I can do shows about this topic because this is not getting enough attention in the mainstream media. So as part of the alternative media, if you have anything interesting that you ever want to share with my listeners, even if it's just a news article that I can mention or something on a show, please get in touch with me. Will do. Will do. It's, uh, it's been great fun. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Um, i got to move on to the part of the show where I announce the uh, winner of the V Radio Raffle. Um, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, essentially this is a activist listener um, uh, funded effort. And I tell people for every dollar value of the um, donations that they have an opportunity to win essentially a free item from my store. It could be a T-shirt, could be a mug, whatever. Um, I don't live high on the hog here. I'm a minimalist by nature, which is why I turn off my um, donation widget early if I don't need more money in a given month. I understand the demographic of the people who value this, unfortunately, are usually people who are struggling themselves. So believe me when I say I absolutely appreciate everybody who supports V Radio. Um, and today we're going to show some extra support to the winner. His name is James Sassano. It sounds like an Italian name. Um, from Nesconset, New York. Um, I'm going to have to get in contact with him to, uh, obviously to get the, uh, whatever it is he wants, whether it's a t-shirt hoodie or whatever from the, um, V radio store. So thank you and congratulations and thank you for your donations. Um, as I said, though, uh, even a dollar donation gets you into the raffle folks and that allows me to give back to you. So thanks again, everybody who's donated so far. And again, if this is your first time listening, please visit my website, v-radio.org or v-radio.org. There you'll find archives of this show and more shows like it. You'll also find my must-see TV list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that are pertinent to the various things that I talk about on my show. 
Um, also, interviews with um, – in the archives, you'll find interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists, um, and basically just a whole conglomerate of different people that you'd find interesting at v-radio.org. So thanks again, folks, for being on with me tonight, and I'll leave you with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.